all can be seated. You can open up your Bible to the book of Psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 16 uh, here in just a moment. Uh, but wanted to uh, say thank you. Uh, some of you may not have even known this, but um, I was able to go out to Montana this week. It was the first time I was in that state. It's a beautiful state. Uh, the reason that I went was on behalf of our pastors, on behalf of our church. Our denomination was having a small get-together uh, with pastors of churches in small-ish towns, and we qualify for that uh, here in Winona Lake. I think Winona Lake itself was the smallest town represented amongst the group that gathered, so we like win the prize for that. Uh, the smallest uh, town that a church is in. Uh, but it was a really wonderful time, uh, not just to get to see the creation that God uh, spoke into existence there, uh, but to get to spend time with those brothers and their wives, uh, to fellowship with them, to talk about what it's like to minister in small towns, and even to think about starting churches in nearby small towns. It's worth planning and hoping in North Manchester. Uh, it was great to get to fellowship with them, worship with them, pray with them. Uh, so I want to say thank you uh, for helping enable me to go and free me up to do that on behalf of our church uh, this week. But yesterday, as most of you know, was September 11th, the 20th anniversary of it. And as I was thinking about preparing for this sermon and this text, I, I was thinking of this, that there's a big difference between, I would say this way, between, there's a big difference between happiness on September 10th and joy on September 12th. There's a huge difference between those things. Happiness on September 10th, joy on September 12th. Happiness that we experience on September 10th of our lives uh, may be a common human experience, um, but joy on the September 11th or the 12th of our lives is a divine gift. It only comes for those that are united with God that know him by his son, Jesus. Uh, yesterday was the 20th anniversary of those uh, horrific terrorist attacks upon our country. And I know many of you, as they look around in the room, were not even alive. When that happened, that makes me feel old. Uh, but some of you were adults. I had just, actually, I was a freshman in college. I had been there probably two or three weeks uh, when uh, saw the planes go into those towers that morning and the, the Pentagon and even uh, United Flight 93 that crashed. And it led to the deaths of about 3,000 people that day and could have been very easily been more. And if you were alive back then, especially if you were of any age, you remember that those events really shook the foundations of our country. Uh, I remember just being in the cornfields of Indiana feeling it, uh, where we weren't even really under a lot of threat. Uh, but it, it really shook the foundations of our country in some different ways. And if we had eyes to see it then, or if we have eyes to see it now in hindsight, in retrospect, I think one of the things that that day did was that, or hopefully that it did, was that it revealed how fragile and temporary our normal sources of joy are. Uh, that, that we felt so secure, we felt like we probably had happiness and stability and security. We had happiness, many of us, on September 10th. But when those planes crashed on September 11th, we started feeling disoriented, fearful, angry, sorrowful, grieving. But the question I would have is, amidst all those emotions, is could we, can we be joyful too? Are those exclusive of each other? Uh, could we be joyful on the September 11th, the September, September 12th of our lives as individuals, as Christians, not just back in 2001, but today and in the years to come? Can we be joyful on those days as well? And the answer, I hope, is not surprising to you and that we're going to talk about from this text today 
is that yes, we can. Uh, we can be joyful uh, on those September 11th and 12th of our lives. And if that seems impossible to you to think about, that seems impossible for you to imagine, it could be, and we'll explore these things, it could be that you maybe misunderstand what I mean or what the Bible means by joy. That could be. Uh, or it could be that you don't actually grasp yet how truly good the good news of Jesus is. Uh, and I hope that from this text that we can see that joy is not just possible, but that it should be the reality of God's people through every day of our life. September 10th, September 11th, September 12th. We've been going through a series of sermons the last five weeks. We're on week six of seven of just sermons that were called Values, where we're trying to think together from biblical texts, what are values that we want to mark the life of our church for the foreseeable future until uh, Jesus comes back or we go to be with him. We thus far have talked about great Grace, truth, love, family, and godliness. And today's subject that this text is going to instruct us on is the, is the subject of joy. We want our lives as individuals and as a church to be marked by deep joy. Next week we'll end by talking about the value of dependence. But we want to come to this text today, Psalm 16, to, to look at the subject of joy. And we're going to especially see it at the end of this psalm. Uh, but we're going to read the whole thing and then kind of walk our way back through it. But especially focusing on the last verse and even the last few verses. But if you have your Bible open, you can see that this was written by King David. It says at, in the inscription at the top, it probably says a mitcom of David. That's the heading. I, I honestly don't know, and a lot of people don't know what a mitcom is or what it means. It's probably like a musical term, but we can know it was written by King David. Uh, and we're going to see it culminates at the end with a powerful statement about joy. Many of you have probably heard verse 11 before, maybe even have it memorized. But I want us to read the whole thing to set it in its context, then walk back through it. Uh, so follow along with me, Psalm 16, verses 1 through 11. We'll read, I'll read this aloud. So David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote this. Preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. There's so much that could be said about this psalm. We'll just scratch the surface. But I want to walk back through this psalm, and I want to uh, preach it under four headings, four basic questions to help us understand what David was communicating, what we can learn from it, how we can apply it in our lives. The four questions, and they'll be up on the screen as we go through, but they're going to be these. Are, what is joy? 
Where is joy found? How is joy granted? And how is joy maintained? So what is it? Where is it found? How is it granted? And how is it maintained? So the first question that I, I don't want us to get too far down the road in this text before we actually address it is, what is joy? Uh, it's a word we use a lot. It's, uh, some of you may be named joy in the room. It, we, it just becomes uh, some of our common language, but sometimes we don't pause to really think about what it means, what that word is describing as a reality that we're to, to long for and that we're even made to experience. So if you look at verse 11, down at the very end of this psalm, David, as he's culminating this song, he, he says right in the middle, of the last verse he says in your presence there is fullness of joy there's the word fullness of joy so he's saying that that is something we can experience as human beings it's something we should even as God's people experience as joy but but if it's some of the surrounding words and phrases in this psalm help us understand what David's getting at it's not just one word randomly in the psalm but you can see even in the other language he uses what joy is what this reality is that he's describing so like if you look at verse 9 for example just back up a few verses in this psalm you see him say that his heart is glad that his whole being rejoices. So his heart is glad, he says, my whole being rejoices. And so I, I love those phrases, and I think they help us at least get in the ballpark of what joy is. Joy can be a hard word to define and pin down, but when he talks about gladness of heart, I think we're getting closer to language that we can, can wrap our minds around. Uh, or you could think of it as a good cheer of the soul. That's how I've heard some people describe it before. That there, It's something deep within us. It's not some surface level experience, but something deep within us in our heart or in our soul, in our, the whole of our being, that where there is this gladness. It's much deeper than just happiness and pleasantries and, and roses and butterflies, things like this. But there's this gladness of soul, this gladness of heart. And I, I want to make sure that we really get this and clarify that joy, as the scriptures speak of it, as, as David even describes and says how there's this fullness of joy in the presence of God, I want to make sure we don't have too shallow or too thin of a view of joy. Because a lot of times we think of joy as happiness. We think of it as just having pleasant emotions, just having really surface level uh, gladness and ease in our life. But the joy that David is talking about is deep-rooted. It's not the type of joy that's this fleeting, almost mist or vapor, that when the heat of the sun, the heat of circumstances come into our life where there's pain and hardship, that it just burns off and goes away. That's not what David is talking about. That's happiness. That's these fleeting pleasures. But joy is something that is deep within him, that's almost untouchable by the circumstances of life. There's a gladness of heart deep down within him. And we can know, at least, that he's not talking about a frivolous, kind of thin happiness if you even look at the first verse of this psalm he says preserve me O God for in you I take refuge uh, David's life was not easy it was not just one of of simplicity and joy and people treating him well all the time and just abounding good experience he said he's saying I need refuge I need shelter Right? That his life was one that he had hardship. He had suffering that he needed sheltering from. He needed something deeper within him that wasn't just based on the circumstances of life, but he needed solidity. 
Uh, that's where he starts speaking about joy and, and longs to experience and knows that he has fullness of joy in the presence of God. Uh, some of you are familiar with Pastor John Piper, who served for decades up in Minnesota. Uh, if you like podcasts, he has a, a podcast of short little, uh, almost like devotional thoughts. And I love the name of it and just would commend it to you. He calls it Solid Joys. I love that. Solid joys. Sometimes we think of joys as like, if we're really penetrated and what we experienced on, on September 11th, many of us, if we were alive, we have these little flimsy joys. Uh, we have, we have uh, the, these really thin things that we are basing our happiness, our contentedness on as God's people. But what David is describing is a, a deep sense of a gladness of heart. That that's not affected by the circumstances of life. That may be challenged by the circumstances of life, but that is not moved. Uh, a deep gladness of heart and soul. A good cheer of the soul. Think of the song, It Is Well With My Soul, that we sing here sometimes. That, that's, that's getting at this idea of joy. That, uh, that though there's sea billows that roll over us, that we can still, even in those moments, have joy. So David is saying that we can have joy. He's saying that in your presence there is fullness of joy. But the second question, if we now know, at least are trying to know what it is, is to think, where is it found? Where is joy found? How is it obtained? We'll look at even in a little bit as well. But in this psalm, we can see where joy is found. That, that good cheer, that, that gladness of heart, where is it found? And you see it most clearly in that same phrase in verse 11 that I already referenced, right? He says right in the middle of that verse, he says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Uh, that's where it is found, is in God. He's speaking to God, saying, in your presence, that's where fullness of joy is found. That, that good cheer of heart, that the gladness of heart that I need, that I long for. He's saying to us and all people throughout all time who have now read this, that that is found in the presence of God. That, it, that is found as we are near to him. And you see it mentioned in different ways even throughout the rest of this psalm. Like if you... Uh, Put your eyes back on verse 2, for example. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. That would include joy, right? That would include this gladness of heart. If he's saying, I have nothing good apart from you, that includes joy. So if he's to have joy in his life, if he's to have this good cheer, this gladness of heart, it is coming from God's hand at least, right? That's what verse 2 is saying. It's at least coming from him. It's given by him. But then if you look down at verse 8, he says a similar thing again, telling us that joy is found in the presence of God. As he continues on in this psalm in verse 8, he says, I have set the Lord always before me. Then hear this. He says, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. He doesn't just say, I shall not be shaken, and let us wonder why or what he's grounded on. He says, because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Uh, he knows that there's a solidity, this stability that he can have as a human being because God is at his right hand, because he is near to God. That is why he has confidence that he will not be shaken. In that moment or all the days of his life or even into eternity, he has confidence and solidity about him because he's in the presence of God. 
my wife and I like to listen to podcasts, and sometimes uh, we'll listen to them when we're just doing chores and things around the house, and one that she listens to that uh, I hear the tail end of sometimes is called the Bible Recap uh, by a lady named Tara Lee Cobble, and I'm about positive because I've heard it a lot before that at the end of all those podcasts or near the end of it, she always says, he's where the joy is. And she says that all the time. I, I've heard her say that. I've heard her voice say that. And when I was reading this psalm, I, I kept hearing that uh, play over and over again in my mind that he's where the joy is. If you're longing for joy, if you're needing and desiring, and I think we're made for that as human beings, to long for this gladness of heart, to long for this security of who we are as the people of God. It is not found in any place other than God himself. He is where you find joy. Uh, I would direct you to him this morning, not to any other person, to any other place, to any other thing other than God himself. He, this psalm tells you in various ways, he is where the joy is. He is where you will find that. We were made to experience that as human beings, weren't we? Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden to live in the very presence of God. Right? That's how the human race started, was experiencing the fullness of joy in his presence. That's what we were made for as human beings. But since Adam sinned, we as a human race were uh, kicked out of the garden. We were expelled from it. And unless something happens, we are not able to return to him. We're not able to be in his presence. But that's what we were made for. And so we feel this incredible disconnect as human beings. Many of you are probably living through it right now, where you know that you have this longing for joy. You have this longing for peace and this good cheer in your heart, but you cannot grab it. You can't obtain it because every other person, everything in life will let you down, does let you down, can hurt you, will hurt you, will go away, can go away, everything. There there is no solid place to pursue joy and to find joy other than God himself. This psalm talks about in verse 4, it talks about those who run after another God. And we all do this. Like we all have this longing for joy, this longing for gladness of heart. And in an attempt to find it, we run after other gods. We run to all these other places other than God himself. We try to find happiness and gladness and so many other things. Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor, he's retired now, but from New York, he uses this term of functional gods a lot. Uh, that we may not, I doubt any of you run home to like little idols in your dorm room or in your apartment, things like that, to try to find joy. Joy. I, I would bet money on that if I was a betting person that none of you do that. But as human beings, we all do run after other gods. There's other places, there's other things, whether we realize or not, that we look to for gladness, that we look to for joy, that we look to for a, a good cheer in our heart. We look to our health. We look to our wealth. We look to the security of our friendships. We look to a spouse or to a potential spouse or to our children or to our parents, to our reputation in the community, our grades, our success on the athletic field. There's all sorts of places that we look to try to find joy and happiness. And what we are doing is verse 4. We are running after other gods. We are trying to find happiness and joy in those things. And David is saying, when we do that, when we run after these other gods, he's saying, you will not find joy there. You may find some thin happiness, some temporary happiness, but he says to us under the inspiration of the Spirit that sorrows will multiply when we do that. 
that we will think that we're going to grab security, that we're going to find success, that this next thing, if I can just get that, or if I can just keep that, then I can be happy, then I can have joy in my life. It's like we're grasping after air. It's like we are trying to, to cling to sand that's just going to run through our fingers. And not just are we not going to get the joy that we long for, but we are going to actually get sorrow instead. Because like, we're going to have longed for these things and set ourselves up to think that will fulfill me. That will make me happy. And then when it doesn't, we'll be crushed again. But what we keep doing is we, as human beings, we go after these other things. And we just find a new target to try to find my joy. A new place to find my happiness. And David would tell us, because I think he had lived through this, that you will not find it anywhere else other than God himself. Every other place is sinking sand. And so we cannot go after these flimsy joys. I have used this quote before, but I, I love it so much, I wanted to share it again. Uh, it's from C.S. Lewis. Uh, and he, as he was writing about what I would call like flimsy joys that we run after, I think we can have this on the screen. He, he wrote this. He said, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And what he was saying is that, yeah, we try to find these things to make us happy, these experiences, these people, these places I can go, these things I can achieve. But he's saying those are nothing. It's like when we're grabbing after those things, it's like playing with mud in a slum. Like they may make us happy for a second, like a little kid playing with those things. But we, it's almost like we can't even comprehend there's something infinitely better than that. A holiday at the sea. Something that doesn't even compare. There's this joy that we can have that is inexpressible and we settle for such little things that really aren't going to deliver us happiness at all. They're not going to deliver us joy. They're just going to give us sorrow. And David would want us to, to lift our eyes to a higher source of joy or downward to a deeper source of joy to a relationship with God himself. He is where the joy is. Like I alluded to already, we should wonder then, if the place, the only place I can find joy is God, but I've sinned, I've offended him, I've rebelled against him, I deserve judgment for him, I don't deserve to be in his presence, I can't even get to his presence on my own if I want. The question that should rattle around in our minds, as these ones who've pursued all these other gods, is Am I just hopelessly joyless? Like, I know I need it. I know I want it. But the one place I can go to find it, I've burned that bridge. Like, I've rejected him over and over and over again. I deserve his anger. I don't deserve joy to be granted from him. And so the question should be, how is joy granted? Like, how is it actually given to me? Like, how can I actually receive it? And praise God, this psalm and many other texts through the scriptures tell us how we can. This is where, where good news comes in. If you look at verse 6, as we think of this question of how is joy granted? How can it be given to us? I, I point you to verses 5 and 6, but especially verse 6, where he says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Those, I don't have time to get in depth about what those metaphors are driving after, but I, it will at least suffice to say that he's using these metaphors to talk about something that is given to him. 
Like not something that he achieves or that he grasps after and just obtains, but he says like the lines falling in pleasant places, almost like this idea of like boundaries of land uh, that is allotted to him. And he, he doesn't get to determine that. He says, he calls it a lot in verse five, right? Like that is something that is determined outside of himself. It's given to him from somewhere else. From another person, he says, God, you hold my lot, verse 5, but that falls for me in pleasant places. Uh, I'm given this pleasant place to live, this this pleasant experience of life to have. And then he says at the end of verse 6, I have a beautiful inheritance. We don't earn inheritances, do we? We don't work for them. They're given to us. Uh, by the people who've gone before us, they achieved these things or they were given to them and then they passed them willfully onto us. They could withhold that from us, right? But we receive an inheritance. We don't work for it. We're, we're given it by someone else. And so David, as he's talking about this experience of joy he has, he knows it's not just something he's mustered up himself. He knows that it's something that is given to him by God, and that, that God has determined a way to grant him joy, to give him this experience in his life. And this is, is glorious. The end of this psalm, verses 9, 10, and 11, these, these verses, actually verses 8 through 11, are actually, if they sound familiar to you as we read through them today, it may be because of this is that because these verses are actually quoted at a really pivotal point in church history that's even recorded for us in the book of Acts. If you read through the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 to 28, there's an event called Pentecost where Jesus has been crucified, he's been raised, he's ascended into heaven, and now the Holy Spirit has come upon the apostles, and they're starting to preach and tell the good news of Jesus. And the apostle Peter, in this first recorded sermon that we have in Acts chapter 2, he quotes Psalm 16. Verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. And he says, Peter himself says in Acts 2.31, as he quotes these very verses, he says this, you can look it up yourself, he says that David, the guy who wrote this psalm, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. I don't know what that looked like in David's experience, uh, if it was a a foggy thing, a fuzzy thing in his mind. Um, But Peter says that when David wrote Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. And David is definitely saying that this joy is given to him. And then in some way, in David's mind, even as he's writing this, he knows even who that's going to be given through. He knows how that's going to be enabled and granted to him. It's going to be through this Messiah who comes, that this rescuer who comes. That's how joy is going to be given to him. And what David writes here in this psalm and what Peter picks up on as he preaches to that gathered crowd outside Jerusalem that day in Acts 2, is we, we see and we hear David writing, Peter preaching, about Jesus himself, about his death, about his resurrection, and even his ascension to heaven. You see hints of that here in Psalm 16, right? Uh, He he talks about, he says, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. Let me just read. I'll read 8 through 11 again, and then we'll walk back and see how this is referring to Jesus and what it has to do with our joy. So he says, Psalm 16, 8 through 11, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. And then imagine like Jesus saying this. My flesh also dwells secure. 
For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Imagine Jesus saying those things to his heavenly Father. That as, as he was about to go to the cross, he had confidence that he would not be, his soul would not be abandoned. That even as he took our sins, that the guilt of his people upon himself and was crushed in our place at the cross, he had confidence that as he entered into death, as he was crushed in our place, he had confidence that he, his soul would not be abandoned by God the Father. He had confidence that, his, that he would not see corruption, the end of verse 10, that his body would not rot in some tomb somewhere, but that he would be resurrected, that he would be raised up that Sunday morning just a few days later. Jesus had confidence of this. And Jesus had confidence, and then this became reality, that as he was raised from the dead, that he would actually go back to the right hand of God the Father. If the, and that's where the joy is, right? Is at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus knew as he was going to the cross that he'd be raised and he'd go back to be with the Heavenly Father where he would have joy once again for all eternity. That where he would be unshakable, unassailable. He had returned there with his reward for obeying God the Father. And Jesus did that for us. He bore our sin. He suffered on the cross for our sins, the, the sins that we had committed against that one who's the only one we can find joy from. Jesus took our guilt. He took our sin upon himself and was crushed in our place so that guilt could be removed from our record. And he was laid in a grave. And then when he was raised, it was God the Father showing that he approved of that sacrifice, that that death had been sufficient to wash away those sins. And then he brought him back up 40 days later to be with him in heaven once and for all. And Jesus himself, at minimum, is experiencing infinite joy right now with his heavenly Father. And the good news for you and for me is that he can and will, if you're joined to him by faith, he will share that joy with you. That right now, today, if you have repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, you are one with Jesus right now. This waiting to be in the presence of God the Father, waiting to have joy, is something you can experience now. It's not just something you have to wait for someday when you die or when you are raised from the dead, but it's something Jesus is enjoying now. And if you're united with him, you can enjoy right now as well. That you are one with him if you have faith in him. You've been united with him. And on top of that, God in his abundant generosity sends his Holy Spirit to dwell within you. The third person of the Trinity. If God is where the joy is, and God sends his spirit to dwell within you, guess what that means for you? You can and ought to have joy. Like you, you are one with God the Spirit now, and you're united with Jesus who is literally at the right hand of God the Father right now. We can have joy right now as the people of God. And what joy should fill our hearts? We used to sing that song, uh, lyric in a song I would sing as a kid. What joy should fill our hearts, right? We should have such joy knowing what Jesus has gained for us, what he's experiencing right now and can share with us. That should fill our hearts with joy. Yes, for the future, we should have hope and confidence that someday we will experience unhindered joy once and for all if we're one of his people. But we can enjoy and we can have joy fill our hearts right now, today. 
It's not something we just have to put off into the future. We, just like this psalm says, we dwell secure. We can dwell secure right now, the end of verse 9, if we're united with Jesus. Not because we're wonderful Christians, not because we've been obedient enough, but because we have been united with Jesus by faith. We can dwell secure. So we can have this joy right now, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of grief, even in the midst of sorrow, even when towers are crumbling down, even when loved ones are dying, even when we are dying, even as these things just erode, these things that, yes, we found happiness in, we found some sense of gladness, but as those things dissolve and inevitably go away, we still can have joy. We can still have gladness of heart because we've been made one with God through the work of Jesus. We we are one with him and that can give us joy as everything around us gives way. Another song we sing is just, though all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. As we have pain and grief wash over us, we can still have joy. Grief and joy are not mutually exclusive of each other, right? They can coexist within the complexity of a human being. That we can have joy within our hearts. I've experienced this in my life. I hope that you have experienced it in your life. That even as those thin joys, those thin happinesses are washed away, that you can still have a steadiness of joy and gladness of soul. Not a fake perma-smile thing, but a gladness that's deep within you as a person because you have been united with Christ. When my wife and I were going through a very difficult part of our story years and years ago, uh, there's a song called Satisfied in You. I reference it a lot, but one of the lyrics, I will not sing it for you, but it just had a, a poignant uh, message for me. Was it, it was this lyric that said, a very simple message, may my losses show me that all I truly have is you. That lyric would just be on repeat over and over in my heart in our hearts and it has become true in our lives that even as we experience these losses and these other things give way it makes us remember what we do have like the the thing that will not a person who will never leave us will never go away is God himself and that is permanent as granted to you and so that's my hope for you my hope for our church is that we can have joy even when we have grief and then we have sorrow So joy is granted to us through Jesus. And the last question I would have, let me transition to it briefly. I don't want to even in what I say about how we can have joy to make it sound like that is an easy thing to experience, that it just automatically happens to us, that that we just experience it with, it's just a simple piece of cake thing. Joy, having it, maintaining it is a battle. It's something we have to, in some ways, work toward and, and strive to maintain experientially. If you're familiar with the Psalms at all, you know David, the same guy who wrote this, who said, in your presence there's fullness of joy. And it's describing the gladness of heart that he has as he wrote Psalm 16. He wrote a bunch of other Psalms as well. He also wrote Psalm 51, where he even prayed in that Psalm, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Right? 
Like, which means, as he's asking to have that joy restored, is that in his experience as a person of God, it had waned. His real-time experience of it had dissipated. He, he wasn't experiencing that joy. He's asking God to revive it. And so the last question for today is not just what is it, where is it found, how is it granted, but how is joy maintained? How is it kept? How is it restored? How is it built back up in us when it goes away or when it burns down very, very low? And I'd point you to answer that question to verse 8. I love this. In verse 8 he says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. That, that second line of that is saying what is objectively true, right? He's at my right hand. I can't be shaken. Like I've been united with him. That is true. Most definitely never changes. But the first line of that is this subjective experience, right? He says, I have set the Lord always before me. At the risk of saying the obvious, that's not saying that David is taking God and literally doing something with him or like moving him somewhere, right? He's saying in his experience, he sets the Lord before himself. It's this, this like self-talk that you see in the Psalms at times. That he, it's like he's describing what he does mentally and emotionally and spiritually, that he is setting the Lord before himself and remembering who he is, remembering what he's done, remembering what he's promised. He's saying... I have set the Lord always before me. He knows it's something he needs to do and wants to do all the time, reminding himself over and over and over again of the goodness and the greatness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. He's saying, I set him before me. And if you have these times in your life, or maybe you're experiencing it right now where your joy is waning, where, where it's at an ebb, uh, where it's at a, a, a deep low, I'd encourage you to start by setting the Lord before yourself. By taking simple measures to, and other believers can help you with this if you don't know where to start with that. Take simple measures to start daily at least, reminding yourself of who God is. Reminding yourself of what he's done for you. And it's not like a magic bullet that if you just start doing that, joy will just revive instantly. You'll have no struggle with it. But the path towards joy goes through that. By, by setting God before yourself and remembering what he's like, remembering what he's done for you in Jesus. If you don't know where to start, a simple place I would recommend, we're going through this with our church staff right now once a week. There's a little thing called the Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. That is so good. Like it's these little paragraphs where he is referencing the good news of Jesus and the character of God. And it's these simple little doses that you can read and that'll point you to actual scriptures to remind you the basics of who you are, how undeserving you are, but what God has done for you, the graciousness that God has shown to you, the mercy that he's shown to you, the joy that he offers to you. I'd encourage you to start there. Go through that with a fellow Christian. But the way toward joy, the way toward a restoration of joy comes through an actual remembering of God, an engagement with God, a praying for joy. Do what David did in Psalm 51. Pray for God to restore it to you. He's, if he's where it is, he's the one who grants it to you, right? And so ask him for it and then pursue it. Try to find text in his word. Try to find people that can help you remember who the Lord is. You will not have the joy of your salvation restored if you are avoiding God. I assure you of that. If you are not pursuing him, you will not grow in joy in God's typical providence. It will come from a prayerful pursuit of it, a setting God before yourself. And I would just point lastly to verse 3 on this point. 
of the importance of if you are lacking in joy, uh, the importance of God's people in that process. If you, I love verse 3. It feels kind of like just this interjection that I can't quite see how it fits, but it, it fits as a point of application here. David says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Uh, David, the king of the land, is saying that all of God's people in the land are his delight. They are the excellent ones. And as, as you look around our church, you are the excellent ones in my life. Uh, you are the people who I need to help me fight for joy. We are the people that each other need to fight for joy. We, we need one another. We, we, as a church, we grow in joy together by the things that we learn together, the things we experience together, the things we do in worship together. We are the excellent ones, not because we're great, but we have been saved by God and we can help each other as our joy wanes in life, we can help fan that back up for one another. And may we delight in each other all the more as we experience that. I wanted to, to share a poem as I close. There's a, a poet that I love that if you are looking for old dead poets to read, he's a great guy. Uh, his name is William Cooper. It's spelled like Cowper, William Cooper. Uh, but he wrote a poem called Joy and Peace in Believing. And I wanted to read it for you. It's just four stanzas long. Uh, but I encourage you to, to listen to it and then uh, meditate on it later. The last stanza is actually a, a more or less a paraphrase of Habakkuk 3, the last several verses of that chapter of the Bible, which is absolutely glorious and so refreshing to hear. But hear these words from William Cooper. He said, Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing on his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after rain. In holy contemplation, we sweetly then pursue the theme of God's salvation and find it ever new. Set free from present sorrow, we cheerfully can say, and let the unknown tomorrow bring with it what it may. It can bring with it nothing, but he will bear us through. Who gives the lilies clothing will clothe his people too. Beneath the spreading heavens no creature but is fed. And he who feeds the ravens will give his children bread. Though vine nor fig tree neither, their wanted fruit shall bear. Though all the fields should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there. Yet God the same abiding, his praise shall tune my voice. For while in him confiding, I cannot but rejoice. It's a beautiful uh, words by William Cooper uh, that point us to when, when all around our soul gives way, that God, that Jesus Christ is our hope and stay. He is where the joy is. And I don't know what the future holds for our church. I don't know what the future holds for our community, for our country, for our state, uh, for our individual lives. I don't know what September 11th might be looming. I hope that we have pleasant experiences as a church family in the months and years ahead. Uh, but what I do know is that when the September 11th of life come, that as we face those days, as we enter into the September 12th and 13th, that we can have joy. That when dark times come, when suffering comes, when death comes knocking at our door, when disease comes, when the things that we have clung so tightly to for happiness go away, our joy does not have to. 
as individuals, as a church, I want us, our pastors want us, I hope you want us to be a church that is marked by joy, not by a phony, thin happiness, but by a deep, abiding joy, no matter what God brings into our lives. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward, and we're, we're going to sing after I pray. Father in heaven, we ask on this weekend where we as a country and really the world uh, remembers a horrific series of events where foundations were shaken, where sources of then joy and happiness, even good gifts were removed from people's lives. God, we pray that you would be working in people's hearts and souls, those who lost loved ones that day, those who, even as they remember those events, have grief, have wounds opened again. God, we pray that you would point them, we pray that you would point us to the only true source of joy of yourself. We thank you that you granted us that through your son Jesus, that we can be enjoyers of you right now and for all eternity. We pray that you would restore the joy of our salvation today and that when it inevitably wanes in our experience in the days ahead, we pray that you would restore it again and again and again until it will not be needing of restoration one day. So God, as we sing, may we sing with joy. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.